as the Magi come, and again, they're called the wise men, we're going to see them have a, a response to Jesus. And this is what I want us to focus in on this morning is their response to the coming of a king, a Messiah. And that is their response was to worship, to worship. I wonder what or who you worship. What is it that your heart is captured by, that you pursue, that you chase after, trying to find and fill the need that you have, the desire that you have? In the Bible, we see a command to God's people, the nation of Israel, and some instructions and urging by their leaders to focus their worship on God. In Deuteronomy chapter six, Moses, who is the leader that leads Israel out of Egypt and leads them up to the land of Canaan, the promised land. He's the one who God used to reveal the law to Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five, he says, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In Joshua chapter 22, after the nation of Israel goes into the promised land and they begin to occupy it, the leader that led them in was Joshua. And towards the end of his life, as they occupy the land that God had promised them, Joshua gives them this instruction and urges them. In Joshua 22 verse five, he says, but be careful to obey all the commands and the instructions that Moses gave to you. Love the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways, obey his commands, hold firmly to him and serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Love God. And then Jesus is asked as he walks and teaches and preaches, he's asked by some of the religious leaders of the Jews, what's the greatest commandment? In Mark 12, 29 through 30, Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love God with all your passion, emotion. Love God with all of your personality, your psyche. Love God with all your intellect, your mind. And love God with your energy, with which you live, the way you go after life. In other words, focus everything and direct everything at God. Make sure you're loving him, pursuing him, you're worshiping him. Are you a worshiper of God? Are you a worshiper? In this story today, as we look at the Magi again, Matthew um, is one of the apostles that Jesus chose and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, when I mention the human author, by the way, I'm simply saying they're the one that God used to write it down, but God did use them. But it's the Holy Spirit that inspires them and breathes through them. And so it's God's word. But as the, as the human author, they have some um, perspective and input and God uses them and what they saw and experienced to relay the message to us. And so Matthew's particular perspective gives us this account of these individuals that came from the East, some wise men that came to worship. And you know what's interesting is that as worshipers, they were watching for the Messiah, for the King that would come. They were watching. 
They were looking. And so I find that worshipers are watching for God, looking for him. Matthew chapter two, starting in verse one, let's read a few verses here. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod, that's Herod the Great. About that time, some wise men from the eastern or from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. We don't have a lot of information about these individuals, but we know that magi are referred to in the Bible, actually in the Old Testament, in the um, Babylonian Empire. As the Jews are taken captive, we have some individuals there in the book of Daniel that we know about, Daniel, and then there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe you remember hearing of those guys. They all became magi in the uh, Babylonian Empire. And so when we um, hear, when Matthew says, again, writing that these men came from the east or from eastern lands, we really know that Babylon and Persia had these characters in their government, these magi or priestly figures that were um, spiritual men. They gave wisdom. Sometimes they would interpret dreams. As we see in the book of Daniel, sometimes they would give kings and leaders insight and direction from God that was meant to be spiritual in nature, beyond human wisdom and understanding. And uh, they also were um, star watchers or astrologers. And so these particular individuals were watching the skies for an indication, a sign, a star that this king had come. Where do they get the idea that there would be a king come? Where do they get that idea? Well, we don't know for sure, but we believe that again, when Israel was taken captive into the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar, that Daniel and others were there serving. And Daniel, we know, was a prophet. He prophesied about the coming Messiah. And so we believe that this could be the source of these individuals' information about a king of the Jews, a coming king. And that though Daniel lived 500 years before these men came to Jerusalem, that perhaps he was the one, right? It's through him that they understood the prophecies regarding a coming king. And certainly they knew it was more than just an earthly king because a star in the heavens that would indicate his arrival meant that God was involved. And so they're watching, they're waiting, they're looking. Over 500 years, this information's passed down and these men were um, diligently looking for God. They wanted to come and worship and when they saw the star indicating his arrival, they traveled at great cost and they went because they had to pay homage and worship him. Who or what do you worship? Are you a worshiper of God? Are you looking, anticipating? As you go throughout your day, are you looking, right? Are you aware of God's presence and seeing his activity and worshiping him? Their awareness of what this star means, again, we don't know exactly where that comes from, um, but they were aware that there would be a sign in the heavens that would indicate that this king had arrived, that he would be Jewish and that he would be in Israel. And so they're watching with great anticipation and waiting for his um, for this sign to show up. They arrive in Jerusalem probably two years after Jesus was born. Um, 
is kind of what we think based on the timeline of King Herod the Great and his lifespan where he ruled. He died uh, about 4 um, 4 AD. And so we know that um, he's a part of this story. And so, um, but they had moved beyond the manger that we see. A lot of times we see the wise men at there at the manger in the nativity, but very likely a couple of years beyond that. So Jesus is probably a toddler at this point when they show up and they arrive in Jerusalem and they're asking, where is this new king of the Jews? We've seen us, we've seen the star. We've seen the indication in the skies that he has arrived. Where's he at? And so again, I wish we knew more about them in a lot of ways, but perhaps part of the reason that the apostle Matthew relaying the story to us writes about them is because they very likely were not Jewish men. They were Gentiles. And Matthew's gospel is written primarily to the Jews. And so again, that being his audience to point out that there's some Gentile worshipers that were looking for the Messiah. How many Jewish people missed the Messiah? Isn't it interesting that these are the only men that seem to see a star in the heavens indicating the arrival of the king of the Messiah? No one in Israel seems to have seen this star or was even perhaps even looking for it. And yet these Gentile men over generations looking, anticipating, waiting for the coming of Jesus. It's interesting as I live my life um, and pursue God and try to share Jesus with people or talk to people about God. And, um, you know, there are people who are seeking, they're really looking, trying to find God, trying to understand who he is and, and what he's done and, and to find that connection, right? Because they recognize a need and that there is a God, just don't know who he is. And so they're seeking and asking and looking and waiting and anticipating. But I also run into people that represent more of the next character in the story, which we've mentioned already, but they're really not interested in who God is. And in some ways, if somebody begins to try to pursue God or find out about God, they try to discourage them because they're really not interested in who God is or in discovering him, finding him, worshiping him. And in our story, the individual that shows up here who becomes the one who's working against what God's doing is King Herod. And King Herod is um, in the line of Esau, as we mentioned last week. Uh, you have Jacob and Esau, the twin sons of Isaac. You got Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob in the line of God's activity, building and growing the Jewish people, the Hebrew nation goes through Jacob, not Esau, even though Esau was the older brother. But if you remember the story of Esau, he, um, he sold his birthright. He didn't want it. And so Esau, though, Technically, in the family, in the lineage, Jewish lineage, he was not following God and living for him. He didn't pass that legacy down. And so Herod comes in his line. He looks like he had a Jewish mother and then a, an Arab father. And so, and really because of Esau, it's Arab on both sides of his lineage. And he grows up, his, his family converts to Judaism and he grows up learning the Jewish traditions and but it doesn't really look like he believed it. He's a phony in terms of being a rightful king and leader in Israel. He didn't come to power because of his heritage and lineage. And so he, as an apostle, when this possibility of a king, a Messiah that Israel would have been looking for, right? When the possibility shows up, he tries to undermine 
this move of God or potential move of God. And so what we find next is, and as a principle in life, I think we see it is that imposters, which is what Herod was, imposters are undermining. While worshipers are seeking and looking, imposters are undermining what God is trying to do. Let's continue reading Matthew chapter two, verse three. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as he was, um, or as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. Are not, um, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Herod is disturbed when the possibility of a Messiah comes into his purview. Judea is the southern region of Israel. And uh, this is where Jerusalem was located, also where Bethlehem was located. You had Galilee to the north, you had Samaria in the middle, and you had Judea to the south. And um, perhaps part of the reason Matthew, again, tells us this story and writes of this, um, uh, this part of what occurred when Jesus was born and around his life, perhaps, because Matthew was a tax collector. Now, these kings, King Herod, was put in charge by Rome, okay? His family lineage was not why he was in power. It was because his father was really good friends with Julius Caesar, had a good relationship there. So it was a political position. And as Rome expanded and conquered peoples and nations, they would put their own rulers and leaders in charge. And so Herod comes to power because of that connection, not because of his Jewish lineage or even his um, uh, being a Jew, really. And so this is how he comes to power. It's a political reason. And part of these rulers, King Herod in this case, one of his primary jobs was to collect taxes and funnel them to Rome. And so this was a part of his position. And there's a lot of, um, um, there's a lot of drama that occurs because of this position and power and money. Well, Matthew, if you'll recall as a disciple, what was he doing when Jesus found him? He was a tax collector, right? Now he was up in the North in Galilee where Jesus' ministry began and where Jesus was primarily traveling. But Matthew, perhaps, well, if he was a tax collector, he worked for Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. And so Matthew knows about this whole inner workings, okay? He knows about the money train. He knows about the corruption. He knows about what occurred because he was really pretty intimately connected to it and involved in it. And so perhaps, again, that's part of the reason that Matthew recounts this is he was aware of what was going on. Herod the Great was the beginning. He was the first in a, in a line of those who would rule and control and work over um, Israel and, and keep this connection with Rome alive and keep the money flowing to Rome, to the Roman Empire from Israel. And of course, Rome took care of its leaders and it did make sure that they prospered and were financially wealthy. But because of this position of power that Herod had, um, corruption, right? And he began to get paranoid and worried that uh, someone was trying to take over his position. And so he actually killed one of his wives. He killed a couple of his sons. Um, Herod, uh, excuse me, Caesar Augustus made a joke that um, because of Herod's paranoia and the way he lived and treated even his own family out of fear that somebody was going to take over his position, 
Caesar Augustus joked that it would be better to be Herod's pig than his wife. And of course, pork is not eaten, right, in Israel. And so to be a pig in Herod's home would be a pretty safe place. But to be his wife or to be part of his family was not. And so this is the nature of his rule and reign. And Herod um, is a, uh, a man who's been consumed with wealth and money and corruption. And so he's not concerned about the coming of a Messiah. He doesn't want Israel to be rescued from Roman rule by a leader that God would put in place because he's benefiting from the connection with Rome, the relationship with Rome. So see, he doesn't care about the people of Israel. He doesn't care about what God might be doing. And so when these magi show up and they ask, hey, we've seen a star in the sky indicating this king has come. Herod does connect some dots. He goes, okay, a Messiah. This must be the Messiah that was prophesied about. And so he pulls in some religious teachers because though he grew up, or he grew up in Judaism learning some things, he didn't learn all of it. He didn't pay it a lot of attention. So he doesn't know for sure the details. He knew there would be a Messiah. He's heard about it. The nation of Israel is looking for a Messiah. They want to get out from underneath Roman rule because Herod's an imposter. He wants to undermine any possibility that this prophecy might be fulfilled in his time. And so he calls in the religious leaders, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they say, Bethlehem, small little Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Because that's where King David grew up. It's where he was a shepherd. It's where he cared for the sheep and grew up as a young boy. And so Bethlehem was prophesied by Micah to be the place that the Messiah would come from. And so as an imposter seeking to snuff out, to stop whatever God might be trying to do here, even if it's God himself, Herod doesn't want this Messiah to grow up and to be successful. He wants to stop it. And so I find that imposters, people that would pretend to know and love God, it seems like whenever somebody begins to grow, whenever God's work begins to get done or something begins to happen, it's interesting how they try to undermine it or stop it, work against it. And of course, there's plenty of people out there that would say they're God-fearing. But again, if somebody wants to go towards God or find out about God, they're going to, be, they're going to provide opposition to that. And I believe part of the reason is that, that we do have an enemy who is real in the devil, and he does work to utilize people that are easy for him to use because they have no spiritual discernment. They don't love God. They're selfishly motivated. And so they're trying to stop. And so they become a discouragement. I meet with lots of people who are trying to grow spiritually and they talk about people that discourage them or trying to stop them, hold them back, pull them back. Oh, don't grow. Keep doing what you used to do with me. Let's go out. Let's go party. Let's go do whatever. Like, come on, stay who you are. They don't want you to grow. That's kind of like Herod. Pretended to be a Jew, kind of was a Jew, but he didn't want God's will to be done. And so as an apostor, when the Magi come, he creates an alternate plan something he's going to try to use them to do, which is to stop the work of God. That's what he's about. And so he hatches a plan to utilize these men to try to stop God's work. If he is raising up a Messiah, if there is a Messiah coming to power, he's going to try to, be, uh, try to stop him. And what's interesting though, and I see this happen all the time too, in spite of the enemy's efforts, and you're probably, you're probably an example of this. Like you're here, and you're, you're pursuing God, even though it's hard and you're struggling and you have lots of opposition to it. And it maybe a lot of days, it doesn't feel like you're getting very far. You're not as far as you want. You're still here. And that's because God 
overpowers the imposter's attempts to undermine his work. God's not going to be stopped by anybody, not the enemy, not the devil, and not those that would even try to slow you down or stop. So even though Herod gets used by the devil to try to snuff out the Messiah, worshipers are still led to the Savior. They still find their way. <laughs> Somehow, some way, you found your way here today to worship God. You, you keep finding your way. And so God somehow, like he works and he, he overcomes the attempts of these imposters, these oppositional people seeking to undermine God's work in your life and my life in our world. And he gets them there anyway. Let's continue reading in verse seven of Matthew two. Then Herod called for a private meeting with these wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. He's doing the math. He's got a plan. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chest, their treasure chests, and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. This star that they had seen, that it indicated the king has been born, that they traveled to Jerusalem to find out where he was at, right? Well, this star, after they come out of their meeting with Herod, it shows up again, it reappears, and it leads them to Bethlehem, and it, it, um, it lights over the house where Jesus was living. And so they're able to find their way to Jesus. And they bow down. To worship really in this means means to prostrate yourself. They get on their faces before God, before Jesus, and they worship him. Again, not something you do to a human being. And they open up their treasure chests and they have these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there may be some significance. I've heard lots of teachers unpack the different gifts and what they mean. And perhaps there's meaning there. I don't know. But I certainly do know they're gifts meant for a king. They indicate the kingship of Jesus, his position as leader and ruler over the world, his rightful role to be king of kings and lord of lords and to rule and reign over the earth. And so they worship, they give their gifts and regardless of what they might mean and there could be a lot of significance there, but I do believe that as, as Herod unrolls his plan to snuff out the Messiah by sending soldiers to Bethlehem to kill the babies under two because he's calculated when the star showed up, that's how old this baby would be. And so his plan again to snuff out the work of God is thwarted when an angel appears and tells Joseph, flee to Egypt. And we know they very likely use these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which is probably pretty valuable to survive for a couple of years in Egypt until they're able to come back to Israel. God at work providing, ensuring that his son was able to live and fulfill his mission on earth. These star watchers, spiritual men, 
Gentile leaders, they came to worship, to worship the Savior. Are you a worshiper? You know, as we approach Christmas this year, I know something's very true for probably all of us. It's true for me. And that is there's a lot of things that occupy our hearts and minds that get in front of God a lot of times. They get in front of God. And so that we're encouraging the scriptures and commanded and challenged to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to put him first, to worship him. The last series we just ended going through the gospel of first, or the letter of first John, you know, the very last verse says, you know, guard against anything that might get between you and God in your heart. Anything that would get in front of God in your heart, guard against it, watch out for it. And yet it happens over and over and over again. It's a battle that we face. And so I just want to have you breathe for a minute. Maybe you got so much going on in your mind, so much pressure you're under that you have a hard time even sitting down in church and focusing on God, right? It can be that way. We, our minds are running all over the place and we're distracted easily. And so it's like, how are we going to get ourselves in a sense to focus in on God and to worship him? Because that's what this Christmas season's all about. And so I just want to ask you to take a breath for a minute and remember that you're not a human doing you're a human being and God created you for a relationship with him. He didn't create you to do a bunch of stuff, even though you can, you're very productive. You're very gifted, right? You, you, you do a lot of things and it's beautiful, but that's not the primary reason God made you. He made you to know him, to have a relationship with him. Are you walking in that? It really begins as we direct our heart, mind, soul, our entire being at God, and we worship him. We love him. This Christmas season, I want you to remember that. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of things you gotta get done. A lot of people counting on you, relying on you. But God just wants to spend time with you. He came, Jesus did, full of grace and truth. He didn't come with judgment on us. Um, he wants you to obey him and follow him and live according to his will because he knows that's the best for you. But he's not so concerned with your obedience as he is with your presence. Your obedience will come out of your presence. Remember, the Bible tells us that it, where Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Just remember, it starts with love. It doesn't start with obeying the commandments. <laughs> obeying the commandments doesn't lead to love. But love leads to obeying the commandments. So we're supposed to love God. He calls us into a relationship, invites us into that. He just wants to spend time with you. He just wants to love on you and have you experience him. Are you doing that? Are you a worshiper? I'm just, I just want to call you into that. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with him, you came here today seeking, looking for something, I want to encourage you that you can have a relationship with God through Jesus. And the Bible tells us it's believing and trusting that Jesus is the son of God, the savior of the world, that he died on a cross to pay for your sins so you could be forgiven and set free and you could have that relationship with him restored. And so I wanna invite you into that relationship this Christmas season because that's what the coming of Jesus is all about, that you could know him and you can invite him into your life and you can simply pray a simple prayer, a belief that you trust in him, you believe in him, and you invite him in. And when he comes in, he'll begin to change things, show you who he is, 
invite you into that relationship with God, help you understand why you're here, why you exist. And yeah, we can do a lot of good things, but God made you for a relationship with him. God, thank you for loving us and caring about us, calling us to know you. You've done so much for us. And thank you for the example of these wise men who just came to worship you. They wanted to be in your presence. They wanted to honor, recognize, pay homage, give their heart, soul, mind, strength. God, help us to do that today. We live in an era full of distractions, full of pressure, full of a lot going on in our lives. It can be hard to to focus on you, to experience you. And so I just pray you'd help us this Christmas season, in spite of everything going on, to love you, to worship you, to experience you in a fresh way. We pray all this in Jesus' name.